Hi, and welcome to the Lehman Krellin Podcast. I'm your host, Damon Baker. In this podcast, we focus mainly on regulatory compliance issues coming out of the UK, but there is a global component to the content we present. We hope you get value out of this one. Thanks again for listening. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of Meet the Team. This time we have Chad Jassani. Please tell me I pronounced that correctly. Spot on, my friend, spot on. I love it. All right, cool. So, Chad, you know, everybody's got a backstory. How did you get into what you're doing now? I understand that you do a lot of trade reporting work with clients at Lehman Krellin. You and I have even worked on a project together along those lines. But I heard through the grapevine that you started off in financial services somewhere north of the border. Talk us through that, please. Yeah, so early noughties, I managed to land a job with a software vendor and I joined their EMEA professional services team. I spent my first week sat in the London office learning a bit about Swift messaging and, and their product. Uh, by week three, I was dropped into a pan-European stock exchange implementation running out of uh, Stockholm. So yeah, that was a, a big change. Monday to Friday, out in Stockholm and back to London for the weekends. Oh, wow. So when, what month do you remember when you started? I, I mean, I spent... I, I spent 11 months there and I do remember it got really cold in Stockholm. I remember we were out for lunch and tiny snowflakes were forming and dropping but there was no clouds so it was just water forming in the air and freezing into snowflakes. It was that cold. It was that and, cold. Oh yeah gosh. well wind chill I think it was about minus 40. <laughs> we were based out by the docks as well so we'd started in the centre of Stockholm but then the office relocated and it was right by the, the, the port and it was freezing. That is just incredible. And so, I mean, maybe that was strategic on their part to make sure that you're in the office, like at all times, right? It definitely trimmed the expenses. Absolutely. So talk me through what happened after the 11-month stint. Yeah, I, I then spent 10 months in Zurich. So I had a lovely summer in Zurich. That was working for a big Swiss bank, taking them through a swift migration from one format to another. I came back a real a real sort of Swiss specialist, Swiss wrestling specialist. They have things called S SMPGs, so special groups that work to form kind of domestic standards for the use of Swift messaging. And I got really into that line of work at that point of my career. Wait, so did you represent your financial institution on this kind of working group? Yeah, I, I, and I still do it. I mean, up until two or three years ago, I was still a member of IST12, which is the UK Financial Services Standing Set in organization so they they kind of they opine on all of the iso standards for financial services so things like leis and mit codes and anything that's got an iso in front of it if it's for financial services goes through the ist12 group so you were in zurich with a swiss bank yes how long were you with that bank probably i'd say a 10 11 months again and it was with the same software which is where i met the manager that we talk about later that got me in, in, interested in transactional reporting. Got it. Okay. So after this stint in Zurich, what was your next large piece of work? I went independent consulting, was doing data warehousing type projects for buy-side firms. And then I got a phone call from my ex-boss of the professional services firm saying that she joined Omgeo, who are part of the DTCC. They were half-owned by DTCC at that point. She had a product that was compliant under the investor services directive to report transactions. The product had one big client on it and a handful of smaller clients. 
and they really wanted to work out whether or not it was worth taking that product through um, a change in regulation and making it compliant for MIFID, which was the new regulation. So that was 2006. Was it London based? Because, you know, I've heard thus far that you haven't actually spent much time in London at all. <laughs> yeah, that, that, that was in London. So London based regular trips to Boston at the time, because the half, the other half of Omjo was owned by Thomson Reuters. Uh, well, it was Thomson at the time, not even Thomson Reuters. Thomson's big in Boston. The product management team were headed out of Boston. Though, of course, I did get to visit the New York offices as well. And MIFID reporting suddenly became really popular. I mean, prior to that, I didn't really know what, I didn't know much about regulation at all, because most of my projects were business focused as opposed to regulatory focused. Didn't know much about regulation, didn't really understand what reg reporting meant, where it fitted in the trade life cycle and why it was important. Hadn't really dealt with regulators. And all of a sudden I'm at the FCA once a month trying to gauge progress on, on their side and on our side of how our builds are going to be ready for MIFID 1 compliance. Wow. So, I mean, you had deep engagement with the regulator back in the late 2000s. Yeah, I'm, I'm still friends with my regulator. So the chap, that, the chap that, who was heading up the team there, he's now a very successful business owner. He's got his own reg reporting product and we're still, we're still friendly, still, still friends. Wow, that is cool. So you've got your MIFID transaction reporting experience. You've been doing that work, I assume, for the last how many years? Yeah, it's almost getting on for 20 years now. It's about 18 years. I think MIFID 1 landed in 2007. And then by 2008, 2009, it was fairly well embedded. And I just thought reg reporting might be, you know, might be done for me. I got a job at Big Bank and it was running five development teams and two test teams based all over the globe. So it was, you know, I had people in Hong Kong, New York, France, I probably had almost 80 people in London working for me. And that was post-trade equities technology department. Our, our deliveries were mostly business focused as opposed to reg, reg reporting. I landed initially, I improved the reg reporting that they were doing, but then I moved on to proper business deliveries. And so by that stage, I thought my, my time with reg reporting was diminishing, but then we had the credit crunch and suddenly mm. reg reporting came back to the fore. Uh, we had Dodd-Frank, we had Amir mm. uh, on, on the horizon and that just dragged me straight back into it. And from there, I just haven't really had a moment, moment's break from it. Wow. So have you been in-house all of that time or when did you start doing the reg consulting piece? Reg consulting, I started off on the delivery of technology for reg reporting in a big bank. I then moved to another bank and went into the business transformation side of delivery for Amir reporting on Dodd-Frank. After that, I then moved into the compliance function. I was one of those guys that, you know, I can read the rules and really understand them, really drill into the regulation, understand how it all links together, understand the direction of travel. So it was a natural evolution to step into a compliance role. And I did a year so at one of the big UK banks. And then I did six and a half years at another not so big UK bank. I, I was halfway through lockdown. I just turned big five O, and I decided that I kind of looked at the last six and a half years at the bank and I looked at what was ahead and I just couldn't see anything changing. So I just decided to try something different. And I left the bank to join a, a reg tech startup, a fintech startup. They, they didn't really need me to do what they needed to achieve and to succeed. So we parted company 10 months in and I needed something to do. And I picked up my first independent client 
about two months after. And since then, I've just been picking up more and more clients, ad hoc work. I like, I like the kind of consultancy route. It sort of suits my lifestyle at the moment. I like to help people. I was just naturally, I like to help people. I like variety. So I get to work with lots of different types of clients, whether it's software vendors, their clients, direct clients. So I've just done almost a year in a hedge fund, but at the same time, still doing lots of other things on the side. I work in weekends and evenings, as you know. Maybe we call it a bit of moonlighting. Maybe we say it's a side hustle, but just trying to keep as many many people as happy as possible. I'm also quite quite an advocate of good reporting. So, you know, that's something that I've had instilled in me and I try and instill in others, my clients, my contacts, my network. And and, and I, I like to improve things. So hopefully, if we're leaving a mark on anything in this planet, maybe I've improved a few transactional reports. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's the legacy right there. There you go. So what what are some of the types of interactions, interventions that you're having with clients now that you're at Lehman Crelin? Because I you know, I knew you as our transaction reporting guy. I just didn't realize that you had the depth of experience, especially with regard to um the IT development side of things. I always thought it was more in the red consulting piece, but having that background or that that deep understanding of how the technology will deliver the, the regulatory obligations. I mean, that's got to be in high demand. Now. Yeah, I mean, having an IT background, I've got a degree in computer science. Having an IT background certainly helps because transaction reporting is a fairly mechanical, automated part of the regulations and, and, deli- and delivery. So it lends itself well to technology. Mm-hmm. The work that we do with our clients now predominantly is around health checks um, and, and remediation. So looking at reporting, um, looking at uh, the quality and the style of the reporting, tying that back to the, the firm's business and making sure that the scenarios that are portrayed in the transaction report, and each transaction report tells a little story, tells a little story of the transaction and what happened, when it happened, who with, making sure that all those little stories are quite right and represent the events that took place. I've heard some people say, you know, transaction reports are like little cans of beans on a conveyor belt and, and that's a way of looking at it. It's not how I look at it. I look at them as little stories. You can read a transaction report and you can work out what the firm was trying to do. So yeah, lots lots of the work is around quality assurance and back reporting and, and remediation when things need to be fixed on a, a wholesale level of change. So you might be talking to a client that's got millions and millions of back reports to submit and millions and millions of transaction reports to correct. And what's the most efficient way of doing that? So these are the kinds of conversations that we're having. I also advise on regulatory reform. So my, my recent stint with the hedge fund was all around EMEA refit and all about them fully understanding the obligations in a way that they'd never really understood EMEA 2.0 before. When you went in there, it became clear that they they maybe hadn't really dug into it as deeply as they had done perhaps permitted. And so what you do. Uh, hey, you know what? That's that's something I wanted to ask you about is MIFID 1 versus MIFID 2 and the level of compliance that you've seen, especially with your kind of like standard setter hat on. So talk to me about that. Yeah, the difference between MIFID 1 and MIFID 2, it's, it's really down to the complexity. MIFID 1 reporting was largely quite simplistic. For the UK, it was 26 fields. There was a, something called the TRUP, which the FCA wrote, fairly, fairly comprehensive set of instructions on how they were expected to see things reported. There were a whole big get-outs. You know, the buy sides typically didn't bother reporting under MIFID 1. 
they, they availed themselves of the SUP 1722 exemption and let the sell side report. BIFID 2 kind of changed all that. Regulators weren't happy that whole bunches of, 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 of whole, I'll say, whole populations, whole clusters of the industry were not reporting. They wanted to see more. They wanted to see more in the reports that would enable them to understand and monitor the market without necessarily having to pick a phone up. So what we see now in the reports is because it's a conduct, it's a conduct reporting regime as opposed to an event and risk regime like like Amir or SFTR, they can now identify more clearly who the actors are in a transaction without actually having to talk to the reporting firm, which you know, avoids that element of tipping off, right? Yeah, that's right. I mean, it's part of, it's one of the fields, or it's a few of the fields now. You know, what's the name of the decision maker, that kind of thing. Yeah. Have you seen an increase at all in, say, enforcement actions on the back of MIFID II's enhanced reporting regime? I would say there's been a decrease. If you look at fining under MIFID one, there were, there, were, there were probably almost 15, 20 fines under MIFID one. Under MIFID two, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure I can really think of many um, that have taken place. Um, it almost seems like the approach had changed. They were trying to be, the regulators were trying to be more uh, proactive in getting the reporting quality improved. They've been very, uh, very vocal with their, they've, they've gone to market, they've attended conferences, they talk about the reporting, what they observe. The market watches give you good guidance. There's been a steady stream of market watch guidance. There have been a method of Q&As that ESMA published, been several of those. And it just seems that on the back of all of that, the change of approach, we just see less enforcement. I think what I have seen, though, is that the regulators are more inclined now to drop you an email and ask you some questions, uh, some of which may not be very easy to answer. So we see more of, more of this kind of bilateral conversation going on. There, there's, there's much more exchange than perhaps there ever was with MIFID 1. Very predominantly, it felt like the industry went through the uh, British Banking Association to talk about MIFID 1. Whereas now we've got lots and lots of different trade associations dealing with MIFID 2. So is there FIA, UK Finance, as they're now called, replacing the British Banking Association? There's plenty of different avenues to talk about MIFID 2 reporting than there ever was on the MIFID 1. I think that level of engagement is it's it's good. I mean, that's a good thing, right? When you have that kind of like bilateral conversation going on. Instead of messages being filtered, and then of course with trade associations, you know, people get nervous about attribution of comments and things like that. You know, we've got our, you know, principle 11, I think it is, right? Open and honest dialogue with the regulator. I think it's good that it goes the other way, frankly. Because why, you know, why not, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and, and often principle 11 is cited. Yeah, principle 11 is cited in the sanctions, the letters for bad reporting. You know, when did the firm make its disclosure? We now have the errors and omissions processes, which, you know, we've got templates to fill in. And the FCA will then enter into a monitoring program with you to look at your remediation. If you, if you say you're going to do something, they'll check in with you to make sure you've done it, that kind of stuff. So they're, they're much better proactive management of issues uh, coming from the regulator. One thing we've seen with Amir recently is that the FCA have set up a, a, an industry forum. So whilst they're trying to land Amir for September this year, they've engaged with the industry in a series of meetings to talk about some of the topics that, that are a little bit more contentious, a little bit harder to, to, to nail down. And there've been a steady stream of meetings where the FCA have jumped on, they've ran the agenda, they've asked for feedback and taken a lot of it on board. So the approach is 
it's, it's much more it's much more collegiate now perhaps and, and everyone wants good reporting and nobody people aren't as fixated on the fines they just want to they want to make things better yeah yeah that's actually really good it's more collaborative it sounds like chat we're going to wrap with this question what advice to your just post computer science degree self find one thing stick with it and get a little bit good at it and that'll be a lot easier for you Sounds like that's what you did. I learned a lesson. <laughs> Excellent, man. I appreciate that. So as always, thank you for your time. Thanks for the insights. It's actually good to get a little bit you know, deeper into the, your background and understand how you're thinking. And then, of course, how you're approaching solving some of these issues for clients. Thank you, mate. Thank you. I think that's very, very important. You know, we're at a stage in our careers where, you know, we're 20 years in this, this thing. There's just a lot of experience that we can leverage. So it's good to get the insight into your specific experience. As we bring this episode to a close, I'd like to ask you to please drop us some feedback. Let us know what's working. Let us know where we can improve. And also give us an idea of some topics that you'd like to hear more about. Definitely check out the website for more content at www.lehmancrellin.co.uk. And don't forget to join us next time on the Lehman Crellin podcast. Until then, thanks for your time. Goodbye.